Yes, that's a very important part of the process. And, uh, and again, it's part of the tradition here in Lower Marion, hearkening even all the way back to the Quaker days where you need to talk it out. You need to, to have the discussion. Well, that's only part of the process. Obviously, part, the other part of the process is, is the information and preparing the issue so it's ripe or when you do put it into the process. And sometimes that requires, the government doesn't always move fast. And sometimes it requires taking some time to make it work. I will prepare my officials many times with a, with what I call a manager update, not a monthly report. I don't want to be tied to a particular date or a monthly report, but I'll do a manager update. And it's what I use to begin to pave the way for an issue that's going to come up. Some of it might be mundane stuff, but if you begin to pave that path, you at least get it set. You get the officials thinking about it in advance. By the time you do a formal issue brief and bring it to your agenda, you've gone through a process now where. They heard about it first in the manager update. They, they understood something about it, assuming they read it like they should. And, and now when you finally bring it to the agenda and you prepare an issue brief for the agenda, explaining it all, they're not hearing it for the first time. You, you paved your way, if you will, to make sure that the process runs smoothly. When I asked Ernie McNeely to interview with me, I told him I was curious about what it is like to manage a township rich with history, academic institutions, and religious diversity. I was also curious about the fact that Lower Berrien Township shares a border with Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and wondered what challenges and opportunities this might present. Ernie does not disappoint. His responses revealed to me the importance of pragmatism and innovation in the role of municipal manager. He illustrates what it looks like to attend a process, listing, and working systematically through the endless iteration of local government ideas and projects, which at one point he describes as a bit of a merry-go-round. We talk about the need to shine a light on this profession. Ernie exemplifies why this can sometimes be hard to do. His classic under-the-radar style, his quiet, focused demeanor keeps the attention on others. For this reason, it is wonderful to peek behind the scenes at what it is like to serve in this role. The show notes highlight some of the topics we cover, and you can learn a little more about Ernie and Lower Marion Township through the links at the end. So let's begin. So Ernie, this first question that I really want to dive into with you today is just where Lower Marion Township is and the fact that most people probably aren't going to identify immediately with Lower Marion Township. They're going to be perhaps more familiar with some of the names of the historical communities that are inside Lower Marion Township and along that Philadelphia main line. And I thought you could start off with just a little bit about how the or when the township was formed and a little bit about its boundaries. Sure, Nancy. Lower Marion Township is probably not a familiar name, except to those who are in government or those who live here. People would be more familiar with the names of our various uh, towns and communities, which include Bryn Mawr, Ballot-Kinwood, Marion, Ardmore, Gladwin, Penwin, Villanova, uh, 
Penn Valley, Wynwood. We have a lot of different villages, if you will, in, in Lower Marion Township. We sit right on the border with Philadelphia. So our, we share City Avenue with, uh, with Philadelphia. It used to be some folks called City Line Avenue, but here in Lower Marion, they like to refer to it as City Avenue. It's a very dense and heavily commercial district that has a lot of office and, and retail in that district. But then we stretch from City Avenue and we follow the uh, Schuylkill Expressway and the Schuylkill River out uh, almost to Upper Marion and well, to Upper Marion and uh, almost to King of Prussia. Then we border Delaware County on our on our sort of southern border at the of the Riverside. We're about 25 square miles. It's a big township with over 63,000 population based on the last census. It's an old community. It was it was formed back in in 1700s. So 1713 was when it was formed as a as an independent township. Later, once the codes began to be put in place in the state, it became a first-class township in the 1900. But it was one of the original counties and then one of the original townships here around Philadelphia. Yeah. It's really one of the things that fascinates me about your community and area is this history that that is so prevalent and I think has been in so many ways preserved. And yet you are up against a city that has just undergone so many shifts in demographics. So we're going to talk about that a little bit later, because I do think local government has to really be responsive both to the tradition and culture, as well as the shift in demographics. And you're right up there on the edge. But when I moved to Pennsylvania back in the 80s, I was most intrigued by some of the areas, in particular it was Lancaster County where I started working, but this sort of tradition around religious tolerance. I heard stories about how communities really could live alongside one another. They adapted to the Amish. There was just this sort of blending that they seemed to do really well in Lancaster. And since I have started working out around the Philadelphia area, I've gotten to know a little bit about the history. And I understand that the, that Marion Township was, a, as you mentioned originally, settled by Quakers, at the Friends Community, as it's known as, and continues to have an active Friends Community, as well as an active Jewish community. And I'm sure a number of other religious communities that extend back to the early settlements in Pennsylvania. So I'm curious about your experience as a municipal manager and it, which really started in, it didn't start in Westchester Borough, but certainly a long period of your career was spent in Westchester Borough, Winchester County. And now you've moved to Lower Marion. And I want to know if it informs the way you think about managing a local government where there is this distinct sort of history and well-established communities, which in the case of Lower Marion, it's religious communities and also academic communities, which I know can have an influence on local government as well. It'd be interesting to hear about any observations you have had since coming into the Lower Marion Township to manage and maybe any others about just what's unique about managing in these communities. But the good questions. Lower Marion is very different than, than Westchester. However, both are old historic communities that have been around a long time and, and both have a Quaker tradition in the early years and a, and a tradition of, of tolerance and, and really diversity of, of religious, uh, 
activity. Lower Marion has been around so long that the, while it may have started as a Quaker community, uh, as it went through its various phases of, of an agrarian community, and then beginning to grow some stagecoach stops and little commercial areas for the farmers to market their goods. And then the real explosion when the uh, railroad were built through Lower Marion, i.e. the main line, the community became more diverse. And so now today, Lower Marion has a wide variety of, of religions and religious institutions, as well as higher learning institutions. The higher learning institutions in the Lower Marion are not as dominant as, say, Westchester University was in Westchester. That was a huge influence in, in Westchester, the, the sort of college community. Whereas here, while we have five or six different institutions of higher education, the township here is just bigger, 25 square miles versus two square miles. So therefore, the, the impact of those educational institutions is not quite as great on the overall residential community as it was in Westchester. Today, we our community has a very large Jewish population, including some areas here that are very much Orthodox Jews. And, and so, yeah, it influences the way you do things. It influences the way you, you deliver services. We have a special event cleanup days at our transfer station where you can get rid of all your junk. We have other special events. And in Lower Marion, we have to do them on both Saturdays and Sundays. We cannot do it on just a Saturday because we're cutting out a big portion of our, of our population who can't do those types of things on a, a Saturday because that's their Sabbath. So anyway, it does influence the way you deliver services. It, it influences your sensitivity to the various traditions, but there's also, it also brings a melting pot and a, and in both Westchester and Lower Marion, a, a feeling of tolerance and an ability for all these different factions and the religions to get along and coexist. Would you say it goes so deep as to create a culture where language is the way things are written or the way things are communicated, that there is some sensitivity among the the elected bodies or the other committees that they're mindful that it's that there is this sort of diversity of community, that it can't things can't be presented or stated in a in a sort of way that might be interpreted as one dominant way of thinking or viewing a situation that makes it does have to be a thought process involved in terms of how you may be communicating, where you may be communicating in some cases. And again, you may have to work through the religious leaders in order to truly get your message out because not, not every culture here necessarily follows the local government in the same way. And they may be far more attuned to their religious affiliation than they are to any of their government affiliations. So yes, you do have to think about when you're talking about rolling out a new program, a new rule, a new regulation, you do think about that. And yeah, our elected officials do think that way and they end up being diverse too, since they're coming from all of these different neighborhoods. And we are a municipality where our, our 14 commissioners are all elected by ward. So each one's representing different communities. And, and so they bring that knowledge of how we may have to communicate differently. We may have to roll things out differently. 14 commissioners <laughs> sounds like a lot of bosses, Ernie. When you interact on the national level with different communities through ICMA and other organizations, 
Do you find a peer group that have that kind of structure? Is it more common outside of Pennsylvania? I do find some. There certainly there are other communities. Lower Marion's not not that unique. So there are lots of other communities that that have the same sort of mix. And yeah, I do find colleagues in other communities at ICMA vets and and other type of state or national events where where they face the same sort of issues. Some more than others. Some may have very strong and maybe only two or three types of, of cultures within their community in the ICMA world. Certainly when we talk about university issues, university towns are unique unto, unto themselves and, and the problems and the challenges they bring are different than many other communities that may have primarily residential or a mix of residential, commercial, industrial. It's just a different animal when you're talking about a, a university community. Yeah. I just did an interview last week with Tom Fontaine, and he was talking about uh, something I never thought of on the topic of community engagement, that you've got students that are com coming and going. So you have also a constant need to engage community, and it, it does have a different uh, flavor when you have a certain part of your community, which is transitional. In a university community, you got to re-educate those folks every year because you have a whole new group every year coming into your community. And then you have a whole group that is moving from where most universities require them to live in dorms for the first year or two. Then you have to educate a whole group that's for the first time moving out into an apartment, into, uh, into the community and have to learn a whole different set of rules and regulations on how to live. And I think about that, the we, they mentality that can grow up from the students versus the residents and going back to this, this, this 14 commissioners with their own wards, I would imagine there's some advantage to that, that you have an ability to have a representative of a particular area that can play a role in that significant engagement of that part of the community. It, you're absolutely right. It does help where you have a commissioner that represents a particular community or a ward in our case, because when you need to do something in that particular community, such as build a new bridge, replace something, something that's going to impact the neighborhood, you've got your own channel of communication to that community. Our commissioners here in Lower Marion are very active. Each one has their, their own large email list, a broadcast list, and they have contacts. The Lower Marion also has has a long history of very strong civic associations. So we have a, a very active civic association that basically represents just about every corner of Lower Marion. And so the, uh, the elected officials will also work through those civic associations as well. It helps with that communication. It helps to, to be able to pave the way for an understanding about a project or a new development. It is good to hear that you have this sort of thriving civic association community within the township. Again, I'm not sure what makes that, but it must be in many ways, a strong indicator of the community at large in terms of its health. Yes. Westchester did not have the same sort of strong community association, but it, it's not that Westchester was necessarily different in terms of its overall community health. It, it really is a tradition here in Lower Marion Township that the civic associations have been around for decades and, and they continue to exist and they draw people into their, uh, to their membership. And that way they keep people involved and they don't die out. 
They're always drawing in new folks, new people moving into the neighborhood and they take stances. They will, they will get involved. They'll cast their votes at a civic association and they'll come to the uh, township meetings and express the position of the uh, civic association on a particular project or issue. There was somewhere on your website that I read that there is actually like a leadership bank or a something that people would sign up for to volunteer on various committees in the township. I got the sense that there is a large body of people that are very willing to volunteer for local government committees and so forth. We do have quite a number of volunteer boards and commissions on various topics here. And yes, we recruit regularly to keep those positions filled, but we are also blessed in that and there are a whole lot of people that are willing to devote their own personal time and effort to not only the civic associations, but to serve on our boards and commissions and advisory bodies. Yeah. I want to shift a little bit to your role and we could start right there. When you think about your role and you have 14 commissioners, you have a lot of civic associations, what can you say about the role of the municipal manager, is there a metaphor I've heard in, I've heard in the past, John Ernst and Lansdale said, we're more like a conductor was one of the ways that he expressed the role of manager. And I wonder if you could say how you see in this structure, the role of municipal manager as it relates to all of these various Group. I think John's right. One of the main jobs of a, of a municipal manager is that of a conductor. You're keeping everything going and making sure everything is happening at the appropriate times. Here in Lower Marion, I'm technically a member of any board or commission, not a voting member, but I have a right to participate on any of our boards and commissions. Something I don't exercise a whole lot because of the lack of time, but, but certainly it's a, it's a process whereby you're, uh, you're moving issues through a process and you are, you're getting issues ready to come to the board of commissioners. And, and hopefully by the time you have it before the board, you've done all the conducting you need to do to make sure that they have the information they need, the background they need, the, the positives and negatives of what might happen if they choose to go on a path. And, and they're ready to make an informed decision. And it's sometimes it, sometimes it can wear you out because it never stops. It's a constant merry-go-round. As soon as you finish with, with one meeting where you've taken your votes and enacted your policies, awarded your bids, approved a set of developments, whatever, you're turning right back around and getting ready for the next one. And of course, with the size of Lower Marion and the amount of business we do here, that's basically every Wednesday in, a, in an advertised public meeting at some format, whether it's our committee meetings leading to a board of commissioners meeting on the third Wednesday, or whether it's special board of commissioners meetings. So you have to be that conductor to make sure everything is ready to go on to the merry ground that it needs to. It starts to be like a process is very important. And I wonder if you are an advisor to process. In other words, you see something veering off and going in another, another way that's going to get the merry go round off kilter. Are you the person who minds the protocols and makes sure that coming forward before it gets to that board on Wednesday, that things are in place. Absolutely. I'm the uh, guardian or the, uh, the enforcer, if you will, of process to make sure that everything that is coming to the board has gone through the right process before it gets there. 
I'm also the advisor to the board on process because sometimes you need to advise your governing body on the process that you think would be the right one for them to follow in order to be effective with what they want to accomplish. But yeah, process is ever so important. And it is the manager's job to make sure that, that the process is the right one being followed. And is it the case that there is a desire to hear different viewpoints and that that has to be settled before getting to that final vote? Yes, that's a very important part of the process. And, uh, and again, it's part of the tradition here in Lower Marion. It's probably the, the, it also was part of the tradition in Westchester. Again, hearkening even all the way back to the Quaker days where you need to talk it out. You need to, to have the discussion. But that's only part of the process. Obviously, part, the other part of the process is, is the information and preparing the issue so it's ripe or when you do put it into the process. And sometimes that requires, the government doesn't always boost fast and sometimes it requires taking some time to make it work. I will prepare my officials many times with a, with what I call a manager update, not a monthly report, but I don't want to be tied to a particular date or a monthly report, but I'll do a, a written manager update. And it's what I use to begin to pave the way for an issue that's going to come up. Some of it might be mundane stuff, but if you begin to pave that path, you at least get it set. You get the officials thinking about it in advance. By the time you do a formal issue brief and bring it to your agenda, you've gone through a process now where they heard about it first in the manager update. They, they understood something about it, assuming they read it like they should. And, and now when you finally bring it to the agenda and you prepare an issue brief for the agenda, explaining it all, they're not hearing it for the first time. You, you paved your way, if you will to make sure that the process runs smoothly. How do you lean on your directors in this process? Are they your, your go-to person to help, whether it's data or getting some background, things in, in, in line to support? In other words, in the way of resources or the way of anything that's going to be needed should this go forward and adopted? Is, can you talk a little bit about those directors and how that you rely on them? Sure. We have a great senior staff here. Our, our department directors are all very good at what they do more better than others, but I do lean on them. It's their job to bring their issues, their projects, make sure they've got it in good form and good order to come to me. And, and then I will give them advice on what they need to change in their issue briefing what they need to add, what additional information is missing. But I lean on them to do the, the initial work. It's part of trusting your department heads and, and not micromanaging. I've never been a micromanager. I want to give my department heads all the leeway they need in order to succeed. And if they bring an idea that's not right, then, then I will let them know that it, uh, it needs a little more time and what else they may need to add to it to make it ready. Yeah, that's a valuable <laughs> asset to have that you're in a position where you're not micromanaging, you're able to focus on that feedback. Is that something you do one-on-one, -on -one, Ernie, or do you have a time when you bring your senior management team together? Well, we do both here, Nancy. We, uh, of course, I meet uh, individually with my uh, department heads on an as-needed basis, and my door's always open to them if they need help, advice. But we also hold a senior staff meeting once a month 
where all of my department heads come together and we talk about what's going on in the township, new programs, new issues, what have you. We also do a general staff meeting. That's where I bring together not only the department heads, but deputy directors, foremen, crew leaders, essentially the entire management staff of the township, which here amounts to 35 or so folks that will come together. We used to do it in the big room. Now Zoom and the pandemic has changed everything. Now most of these meetings have remained on Zoom, which in some sense helps folks to not have to travel and be somewhere at that given time. But we do both every month and we talk over what's going on. And one of the most important things I think a manager can do is keep your staff informed about what's going on. They shouldn't be in silos. They shouldn't be in the dark. Public work shouldn't discover that the uh, police department needs this or that at a budget meeting or whatnot. These things need to be shared. Everyone needs to know when, when we're shutting down a road or when we're, uh, we're rolling out a new program for, for HR. So again, it's, it's part of the process is making sure that you're communicating with your staff. Yeah. I think about the role here is more like a facilitator. That you're actually like, uh, in a way, thinking about how are these, how are these interactions going to take place? And this is probably another topic area that we don't need to dive into, but just the Zoom meetings, I think they work to the extent that those relationships exist so that they are uh, efficient and helpful in many ways, but the, the, those conversations and crossing, like particularly when people are located in different buildings or they don't have as much chance to bump into each other. It, uh, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. It takes a little bit more intention to get them to talk about what they need. And it may not always feel comfortable and when you haven't had a lot of opportunity to talk informally. So the building relationships and, and getting those departments to talk one another feels like a little like a facilitator. And I, I want to this will be a good segue to this other area, which is one of the ways that that you and I have talked in the past. We have gotten to know each other a little bit over the years, just in various ways. But one time we did serve on a committee together at the Benecon Health Seminar. And at the time, municipalities were really struggling with the shifts in their benefit structure. And you adopted a, an approach where you decided just to form a committee, and you can articulate this better than I, but sitting down with a group that included the unions and begin this process of talking about the benefits change. And they participated as, and I thought to myself, this is a a pretty innovative, and this has been some years ago, probably 10 years ago, but very innovative way to approach change among groups that are not going to be real receptive to maybe management's approach. You can say more about that, but I think that's a, that approach, if you could share a little bit more about that and maybe whether that's an approach you still use in your work today, which I'm guessing is yes. <laughs> uh, your, your guess would be right. And, and you're right. It was a new idea in Westchester that, that we needed, I felt we needed to sell to, to our folks and change is hard. And especially when you're talking about changing somebody's health insurance, a prescription plan and things that are so near and dear to them. And so yes, as, as I approached our folks to make a major change to 
not only as a provider by going to a, going to the Benacon partially self-insured model, but also at the same time, we were trying to convince them to go to what back then in Westchester was pretty new, which was a, especially in government, which was to go to a high deductible plan with a, with a house savings account an HSA tied to it. And yeah, it took months of, of getting together in meetings and explaining exactly how the, it worked and how it would differ from the traditional PPO or HMO plan. And, uh, but that was the real way that we were able to implement it. Of course, it, in Westchester, I happened to have two union contracts that were up at the same time. So I had to do this with two unions at the same time, and, and it did help to bring folks together from both unions together so that nobody thought that one was hearing something the other wasn't, or that there weren't mixed messages that were put out there in the rumor mill. But, but yeah, we did it in Westchester. We, uh, we brought folks together. We talked about it for months. We ended up being able to negotiate that as a major change in our two union contracts there. And, uh, and it worked out really well. Westchester saved hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars over the many years that they've been in the program now. And I did pretty much the same thing when I came here to Lower Marion. Laura Marion did not have that type of a program in place, but I was really lucky. The, as the old manager was retiring, one of the unions very cooperatively offered to extend their contract by a year rather than having the new manager have to come in and immediately do a contract. So I ended up with both union contracts expiring at the same time. And so I followed the same. I knew this was the way that, that Laura Marion needed to go. We, uh, we negotiated with both unions, but we also had meetings, like I said, with, with folks from both unions and our non-union personnel, which is a good piece of our workforce here. And we went through the whole same process, explain how it works, let it, let them ask all the questions they need to ask, go home to their spouses and find out what questions the spouses may have. We invited the spouses to come into the informational meetings if they wanted to actually attend. And uh, we were able to implement it here at the Lower Marion. I came here at 14. We got it in place in 2017. And now Lower Marion has, has received in five years of experience, we received over $8 million in refunds that weren't needed to pay claims. And we averaged a 1% increase in, in health insurance premium for the entire five-year period. So it's worked really well, but it can't work unless you can sell a new and very strange idea like it was in Westchester and still is in local government at some point to go to a high deductible medical plan and, and to couple it with an HSA. We pay a large percentage of the deductible through the HSA by the township and it's their money. And while I don't know who, what, uh, what you would have in your account, I'm able to check with our provider and find out what our total employee base has in their account. And as of end of last year, going into this year, our employees call it maybe 275 that are actually on the high deductible plan with the HSA. They've got over a million dollars in their, in their HSA accounts. Right. Because if you don't use it, it builds and it's their money. And so that's something that, that really makes me happy that, that our employees have benefited to that extent. So it's not only the township just saved a lot of money, but so has our employees. And of course, in the beginning, that fear is 
that they're somehow not going to get the health care they need because they're trying to hang on to the money. But in fact, it improves the overall decision making within a family. They're able to manage it a little bit more closely. They do become better consumers. They think about what they're doing and when they're doing it. We haven't seen any instance whereby we've got employees that are avoiding real necessary care or anything like that. They just become better consumers and most of them are very happy with it. Our one union didn't go all the way to it. Our police union, they're all high deductible plan. The, the other union chose to continue to allow a PPO option. They pay a little more towards it than they have to for the high deductible plan, but even at that. 70 to 75% of those folks chose the high deductible plan and universally pretty much happy with the plan now, having been in it for a number of years, learned how it works and learned how, look, if you don't need that money during the course of the year, it stays in your account and it's yours and it can build. You can even choose an option to invest. The labor unions there are, have a strong history, long history. Very much so. Yes. Long history of, of unionized workforce here, but we are split. We have 136 police officers in the FOP. We have over 220 some in the workers association, the name of our other union. And then we've got about 80 or 90 non-union folks too. So it's a decent split among the workforce. Yeah. Yeah. And you still offer pension at your township or have you shifted? No, we do offer a defined benefit pension. We also offer a, a 457-401 plan that, that allows folks to save additional monies towards retirement. But no, we have a traditional defined benefit still here in Lower Marion for both police, where of course it's mandated by state law, and also for, for our other workforce, where it's not necessarily mandated, is a piece of the union negotiations. I uh, wanted to also talk to you a little bit more about, again, this municipality you are managing has a history and a culture, but also is sitting right up next to the city, which I have to imagine introduces some challenges that you are faced with. And I wonder if you can tell us about some of those unique challenges and whether it has to do with demographics or just other kinds of shifts in, in your the nature of your comprehensive plan, any particular projects you might want to bring up. Sure. It, indeed, our location does impose some challenges, but also offers some benefits as well. One misnomer about Lower Marion Township is everybody thinks about Lower Marion Township as that uh, place where everybody is rich. And the secret is that's not true. We, we in Lower Marion have a, a substantial low and moderate income population and clustered in certain areas in the township. And we actually receive as much community development block grant money as, uh, as the borough of Norristown, uh, based on our uh, low and moderate uh, income population. Now we also have neighborhoods like Gladwin, where it's some of the highest per capita household income in the United States. So we have a very diverse uh, population here. But our border with, with Philadelphia is a challenge in many ways. Of course, being so close to the city, being so close to the Schoolco Expressway, we have lots of traffic problems. Sharing that border with, with Philly also ends up giving us some crime problems. We probably have a larger police department because of the fact that we do get crime spilling over the border from, from Philadelphia into Lower Marion with our wealthy neighborhoods so they can be real targets for, for criminals who want to come over and perhaps have uh, nice opportunities to, to burglar a home. 
So yes, we, we do get some crime challenges coming across. We also, on the City Avenue district, as I said earlier, is a very large commercial district with offices and commercial activity. And we have the only multi-municipal business improvement district, I believe, in the state. We have a business improvement district called the City Avenue District that, that the city appoints a half of that representatives to, and the township appoints the other half of the representatives to, and we have a operation there that deals with City Avenue and their needs and promotes the growth and prosperity of the district does some security in the district. So in that sense, that's quite a benefit to a lower Marion to be able to have that kind of work with the city. And certainly we share services in some ways. We send our sewage to the city, of course, and their sewage treatment plants. We work with the city on trail extensions that lead into the city and, and provide great opportunities. Our residents can, can get onto our Kinwood Heritage Trail and then connect to the city's trail and, and ride a bike into, into center city, Philadelphia. Wow. Of course, our trains can, can also with all of our train stops on the main line, we can hop a train and be in center city in 15, 20 minutes. So there's a lot of benefits to, to be a neighbor to a large city like Philadelphia as well. Yeah. Yeah. So many opportunities. It's really fascinating to hear about all the dimensions of Lower Marion and Township. And you have talked off and on through this interview about some of the types of advice you might give a municipal manager to be more effective in their role. But I am curious if you have any other thoughts about some of the characteristics or skills or just practices that you think might help a municipal manager. Yeah, I think there are some things to think about, Nancy, and one one that we were just talking about with respect to the HSAs, but uh, applies across the board is be willing to try new ideas. Don't don't hesitate to pitch new ideas, particularly where you believe they can be a benefit. Government is too staid. We, we tend to do things the way we do them and continue to do them the way we do them. Managers need to be unafraid to pitch new ideas. And when you do, if it works, great. But if it doesn't work, own it and accept that it was a mistake and move on. But if we don't innovate in local government, we'll just continue to only be able to deliver the things that we can currently deliver and not change for the future. I think your staff respects you when you're willing to make decisions. I see some managers that, that are afraid to do so and will bounce everything to the elected officials. And I honestly believe that's an abrogation of our duty. Our staff respects us when we can say, okay, we'll do that. Go ahead and do it. Again, if it doesn't work, then admit that you authorized it. It didn't work. And you'll try something different to make it work. Managers also really need to be able to listen. I sometimes tell groups that come here from some of the universities that you got, you got two ears and one mouth, use them in that proportion, right? To listen and you don't need to talk as much as you need to listen, but you gotta listen. One of the greatest skills I think managers have is to listen with empathy and understanding. If you listen to somebody carefully, I think you can really discern what they really want. And that's so important dealing with, with your elected officials, particularly in a public meeting and in non-public meetings as well. You come to understand where your officials are coming from, and then you can understand that what they're trying to accomplish, but perhaps not quite saying, right? And if you can do that, you're so much more effective. Mm -hmm. And the same goes to listening to your staff. 
if you really listen to them and you listen to them with empathy and understanding, you'll be far more effective with your staff as well. You need to, we did talk about this, but you need to explain your decisions to your employees. They will far more respect your physicians. They'll far more respect your answers. Don't just say no, or don't just say, I don't think that'll work. Explain to them why you're saying no. One of the things, a skill that is also very important for a manager, when you're talking about dealing with the public and dealing with your officials and dealing with your employees is the skills to deescalate, right? You need to be able to take a conversation that's starting to get out of hand and turn it and make sure it comes back to something that's productive and doesn't just continue to escalate. When you've made your pitch at a public meeting or in a private meeting with your elected officials, and you properly explain why you think this should happen and what you think the benefits are and what the risks are, don't take it personally then and know when to shut up. Shut up and let your elected officials debate it at that point. And don't take it personally when somebody starts criticizing and wants to argue against the idea and feel you have to jump back in and argue. You don't have to. You've given your elected officials the, the right information. You've given them the, the pros and cons. You've given them the costs. And now it's up to them to argue. Yeah. Take yourself out of it. I've heard, I hear you saying not to become too personally invested that you're doing your professional duty, your obligation, but beyond that, not to become over-invested in what is actually happening at the elected level. Same with your employees. I don't know how many times I've taken a department head who's all upset. Somebody else did this, another department head's not listening to them. They just can't stand it anymore. This commissioner keeps bothering them and asking them for this and that. And, and I don't know how many times I've sat my department heads down and say, look, this is not life and death. You got to learn to stop internalizing this and letting it drive crazy. What we do in local government is important and we do affect folks daily lives far more than county government, far more than state government, far more than our national government. We pick up the trash. We answer with the calls when they need police and fire or we fix their roads. We take care of their sewage and stormwater. But we do affect their daily lives a whole lot more than any other level of government. But even with police and fire in the day-to-day -day business, it's not like death. So don't let your folks get so wound up in, in their positions and their frustrations that, that they can't just step back and say, okay, this commissioner, this resident, this fellow department head is driving me crazy, but I'm not going to let it get to me and I'll deal with it in a calm, professional manner. It takes a tremendous amount of energy and that inner reserve to stay with this year after year. And I wonder on the work-life balance, what you have learned and how it is that you, you do make sure that you have the energy you need to bring to this work. That's a good question. And I do try to leave it at the office. So when I get home, I'm not going to go home and talk about very much about what frustrated me today or what the commissioners did. At this meeting or that meeting, I do try and leave it there. I do try to make sure, and I've always made sure that I got to my kids, the little lick games and those types of things as they were growing up. You do have to strike that work-life balance. You do need to do things for yourself because these jobs can eat you up. They can 
be 24 seven if you let them be, because you go out, you go to the grocery store and somebody wants to know why you can't fix this road or fix this traffic signal. So you have to do that division. Absolutely. It's so very important. I think that's why, that's why I've been in it so long, been able to stay in it so long and been happy in it for so long. I'm about to get my 45 year award at ICMA this year. Wow. (laughs) And it's been this a long time. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting because uh, we are of the same generation and it's hard not to just think about the changes that have occurred over these decades. And yet there is so much that you want to say, hey, (laughs) there, there is some lessons that we've learned along the way that, that you don't want to see that disappear in the way we're doing things going forward. Like change is great. Innovation is great. And there's also this way things used to be that comes from experience and wisdom that is important. And for an example, I just hear so many young employees when I interview them in our job interviews for various HR projects, they will always put mentoring at the top. They're just really want professional development. And so it's been something that I've been thinking about, like within the organizations, how how we can cultivate what we used to have and maybe take for granted because we were we were just oftentimes immersed in worlds where there was more conversation face-to-face and everybody could hear it. You could absorb it like a sponge wherever you went. But during the course of our careers, we switched to email. So there was no longer conversation. We later switched to text. Now we're switching to remote. There's so much change where I think for the younger professionals coming up, it's important for them to, to maybe, what do I want to say? Maybe I think the younger professionals can learn from some of the professionals that are getting ready to leave the field. That's one of my thoughts in these podcasts. I think you're absolutely right. And all of our technological advances have made it harder for young folks to do that. That's why you want to encourage them to do as much as possible, participate in things like local consortiums with other managers, with, uh, with the Association for Pennsylvania Municipal Management, with ICMA. Those are the, some of the few opportunities you have these days where you're not constantly in personal meetings. Instead, you're having a quick Zoom meeting to be able to just socialize and talk and, and, and as you said, sponge up what knowledge you can. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's the advice I would give anyone wanting to come up. Just take every opportunity that interests you, that helps you cultivate what you really enjoy doing and keep your ears open, as you said, listen. I wonder if there's any any resources that, that float to the top when you think about uh, either in the way of books or people who have influenced you or conference that have, conferences that have influenced you in the way you think about managing and leading. Yeah, I think I read books, but I read more stuff for pleasure than I do technical stuff. I think the most effective thing that I've done throughout my career is be involved in APMM and ICMA and, uh, and our local consortiums. We had a manager's consortium in Chester County for the 28 years I was in Westchester. Uh, we have a Montgomery County manager's consortium here, and, and I try and make sure I make it a point to to get to those in-person meetings where we can just talk and I can find out if somebody tried something that that worked or didn't work for them. I think you get more learning from that sort of personal interaction than anything else. Not that there aren't great training programs offered by ICMA and the APMM and other, uh, other organizations, because 
Some of those are very good, but I still think that personal interaction is where you really come up with, that's a good idea. I should give that a try. Yeah, exactly. Or maybe I thought about that idea, but I never thought it would work. And I'm going to go back and try it. It's that affirmation that can come from hearing somebody else express what you have been thinking about, which can be really helpful too. Yes. Yeah. You've been so generous with your time and sharing today. I'm really glad we finally had this opportunity to talk. I've been thinking about it for a while. And I would like if you just stay on for a moment after I stop the recording, but I just want to Thank you so much, Ernie, for joining me today. Thank you, Nancy. It's always nice to talk to you. And this was fun. So I hope somebody else finds it at least somewhat interesting. They will. I've been getting lots of positive feedback on these interviews, and I know this one will be the same. 